Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. We've got a super all-star today, Dr. Bankole Johnson from the University of Maryland, one of the world's foremost authorities on addiction and so much else about the brain. In fact, he is head of the whole Brain Institute down there. He's going to tell you about at the University of Maryland. Bankole, welcome. Welcome, and thanks for having me on your show. Well, thanks a lot. Why don't you introduce yourself to our uh, Different Brains audience, Bankole? Okay, well, uh, my name is Professor Bankole Johnson, and I'm uh, the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Maryland. I'm also chairman in a few other departments like like uh, neurology and anatomy, neurobiology, and pharmacology. But most importantly, I help coordinate and direct the activity of the Brain Science Research Consortium Unit, which is to bring all we know about brain science to a collective table to provide ourselves with the opportunity to develop these moonshot projects that are going to hopefully radicalize treatments and the way we manage people with brain disorders. You know, that is such music to my ears, Bankole, because here at Different Brains, we're trying to get it all under one roof, and everyone except for you is in all these different silos where you have mental health issues over here and developmental issues here and neurological issues here, and it's all the same stuff. Isn't, wouldn't you agree with that? It is all the same stuff, and I can give you a, a perfectly good analogy if you'd like to hear one. I would love it. Uh, let's say you uh, were walking down, I wouldn't say the, uh, the streets of, let's say, uh, of, of elsewhere. And unfortunately for you, somebody punched you in the head. Now, you might well say uh, when you got punched in the head and you later became depressed, well, I got depressed because somebody punched me in the head. Obviously, it upset me because I wasn't very happy about it. And I wasn't, I wasn't happy that I got punched in the first place. But here is the other piece of it. Could it be that when you got punched in the face, that caused a swelling in your brain that swelling in your brain changed specific structures in your brain, and it made you depressed. And it had nothing to do with your psychological reaction to it, which was could have been a part, but the primary issue was because you got punched in the head. Now, also, when you get punched in the head, as you know, you have traumatic brain injury, so you also have tra traumatic brain injury associated with it. So the neurological is associated with the psychological and is associated with the behavioral. And as you say, Harold, it's all in one brain. Brilliantly put, brilliantly put. And I will not take offense that you were describing some of my 26 pro heavyweight fights where I took a good beat in Bangkok. Well, I, I think you won some too. <laughs> it keeps you humble. It keeps you humble. <laughs> now, Bangkok, the. You have no idea. This is such music to my ears. It's like a kindred spirit where you get it. Now, why is it? And I'll quote here Steve Ronick. He happens to be the head of Henderson Behavioral Systems down here, Behavioral Health Henderson down here in Florida. They have 800 employees. They serve 30,000 patients a year. He said, Hacky, why is it when you go to a cardiologist or an oncologist, 
There's no stigma. But if you go to a mental health professional, there's a stigma attached. And we get better results. We get better results. And what you're doing there, it sounds like it may help get rid of the whole stigma to all of this. I couldn't agree with you more. And it's really very curious. And I think it dates back to a few hundred years whereby people tried to separate the mind from the body in some way as if there were two components of a system that never really talked about another. And this mind was meant to be some higher order type of cognitive thinking. And the body was meant to be basically the mechanics. And they were not connected. So when you go and see someone because you have a mental health issue, people believe that it must be due to something to do with this nebulous concept of a mind and that it's somehow your responsibility while you're ill, or at least partially your responsibility, and it has nothing to do with your body. Well, we now know that this is completely incorrect. The brain is the most complex organ in the, uh, in the universe. It has connections with your heart. It has connections with basic, almost everything else. And to give your friend the heart analogy, we now know that individuals who have heart disease often also have mental manifestations of that heart disease and brain stress or stress in the brain is also associated with myocardial infarction or cardiac arrest and, and cardiovascular disease. So it's one system. I think some people like to make it simple, but as my professor used to say, it can only be as simple as it really is. <laughs> and that's a natural segue into the gut brain where the gut has more neurons than the brain, I think, and can really affect the neuroplasticity. You know, that has been a fascinating journey. And um, I would say if you went back 30 years ago and you had talked to people and said, well, you know, what's in your your gut can influence what's in your brain. They say, well, you know, that doesn't really make sense because, you know, the gut has no direct connections with the brain, especially except through some of its large nerves like the vagal nerve. But, but the real issue here is that we now know that these neurotransmitters in the brain or these microbiota can provide signals into the brain. And in fact, they can get into certain parts of it. And these signals are very important. And so maybe we're going to go back to believing what we did thousands of years ago. And when people say, well, it's my gut feeling, well, maybe it might be the best feeling you actually have. Maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's as good as thinking it out. And, and, and one of the fascinating parts of all of this development, um, so, so, so I can um, bring it back to, to neuroscience, is that it could be possible in the future for us to be able to understand how these gut organisms provide signaling in the brain and therefore by changing aspects of the gut, either through diet or through medicines or drugs, that we will be able to influence the effects of the brain without having to actually get into the brain itself. And that would be fascinating. It opens up a whole area of even trying to create uh, vaccines in the gut that influence brain information processing and signaling. It's unbelievably exciting. Well, this is a segue into the, let's call them, for lack of a better term, the traditional approaches to alcohol addiction and the Dr. Bankole Johnson approach. 
Well, I hope you don't call it just a Dr. Bankoli Johnson approach. I, I hope you call it the, the evidence-based approach <laughs> because I hope <laughs> it's evidence-based. But, you know, one of the things that uh, there are several myths about alcohol, and I usually write about about 100 of them when I teach my students. But one of the most important things is to realize that alcohol use disorder and alcohol dependencies are actually bi mostly biological disorder. About 60% of what makes you become an alcoholic is inherited, inherited. And therefore, that doesn't mean everybody who has an alcoholic parent becomes um, an alcoholic, but it does mean that there is a huge susceptibility factor. The other thing that is important to know is that if you have a biological disease that is altering your genes, altering the way you think, well, maybe it's a good idea to have a medicine as well that also works with some of the psychological components to be able to help you treat the disease. And one of the things I will say is psychological treatments are great, they work, they're effective, but medicines work really well as well. And you have to have both. You can't just simply have psychological treatments. That's like, really, as you would say, fighting, fighting in the ring with one hand tied in behind your back, you know, or having one hand by, by your hip. It's not really effective treatment. The most effective treatment combines medicine and psychological treatment. Well, that's very well said. And I often tell people, don't buy society's big lie that things are mutually exclusive. You don't just have to do this or that. You combine and take the best of all worlds. Uh, I was delighted, by the way, that uh, my daughter, Rebecca, who's kind of my hero, who's now halfway through her master's in applied psychology, the uh, textbook she is using right now is uh, biopsychology, where they get into the actual anatomy and physiology explaining different behaviors, which maybe, you know, I don't know, 10, 20 years ago, you never would have found that in a psychology class at all. It would well, be congratulations to her. And I think that congratulations to the course. I think that um, one, of the, one of the sad problems that we have is that what is currently known to people who are let's say informed in the field, it can take 10 to 15 years before the average family practitioner or general practitioner gets a hold of this information. And therefore, some people do not get the best treatment, not because they're not going to see their doctor, but because their doctors are not well informed. And this goes to a whole aspect of training. But I want to touch on something really very quickly, uh, if I may. Sure. One of this is, it is, absolutely important if you have an alcohol problem or a substance abuse problem to go and see your doctor. Because we know full well that those people have not usually seen their doctors for a tremendous amount of time, and they usually have a multitude of physical problems, blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease. And it's really one stop. You go to your doctor to look after your whole health whether it's alcohol, whether it's your heart disease, whether it's your blood pressure, your diabetes, and the doctor is not meant to compartmentalize one and ignore all the other aspects of your diseases. It's very well said. And I'm learning of all these new entities now through our work and interviews at different brains and all our bloggers and 
just people I'm meeting from all over the world. Uh, I just learned about something I was completely ignorant of, uh, misophonia, where I didn't, I had never even heard of it. And uh, uh, Jennifer Jo Brout was explaining it to me because she suffers from it and she's an expert in it. And I started reading about it. And these are people who are not just, as you know, sensitive to sound, but certain sounds like chewing or breathing drive them into a rage. And now you can see on the scans that part of the brain, I guess, is probably near the amygdala, light up where it's not just a hypersensitivity, it's emotion, it's violence. They're ready to go. Well, you know, one of the interesting things that we, we've learned in neurodiversity is, and here's another myth that has come that, that I, I'd love to dispel for you, is that everybody's brain is the same. Everybody's brain is not the same. It's not even close. And, and in fact, what part of the problem is we all process information slightly differently. We may all, depending on our genetic makeup, develop different types of signaling pathways and response to different types of sensations. And therefore, everybody's brain is not the same. That's why the path for medicine into the future is this aspect of personalized medicine. Because we finally realize that you can't treat everyone the same and expect to get the same result and that treatments need to be individualized. And we have very powerful tools at the present time for individualizing medical practice. The question is, how long is it going to take us to educate all doctors to be able to do this? Well, <laughs> a segue into artificial intelligence, but that's a story for another day, <laughs> I suppose. Um, my daughter, when she became one of nine women that year to get a discrete mathematics degree from Georgia Tech. She then wanted to tutor people as she always has one-on-one. -on -one. And I said, Rebecca, why don't you want to teach in a classroom? Why do you want to tutor? And that led to the quote she told me that's on the cover of my Aspiratools book, which is, every brain is like a snowflake, no two are alike. And she gets that, and now I get that. And when some of the great scientists of the world being led by you are starting to get that, everything makes more sense. Um, now, the University of Maryland, where you are, thanks to you in no small part, you've created a vision there. Tell us about the vision and what's going on in the neurosciences at the University of Maryland. Thank you for that. But first of all, I, I really do want to give credit and compliment to a lot of my colleagues. You know, one of the things that makes me lucky is I'm surrounded by extremely brilliant people who are part of the Brain Sciences uh, Research Consortium Unit. And this brings together a lot of departments. And it's actually was part of the brainchild of uh, Dean Albert Reese, you know, brilliant man. And we have surrounded by brilliant people. So the work we're doing is a collection of work from a team. And one of the overarching things to go with, and let me go into your artificial intelligence piece. I know you may want to do this for another time, but it's really important. What we're trying to do is we understand, let's say you're a doctor and you go and train um, and you want to treat X disease of the brain. You can open up a textbook and it says you, you diagnose X and you do Y and Z. 
okay? And you do that for everybody with that disease. We also have a tremendous amount of information on what actually happens to individual people. Now, we never apply that to modify the treatment we're giving to the individual. So one of the things that we're doing at the University of Maryland is an artificial intelligence project in which we try and assimilate individual information as well as specific information and treatments about the disease, as well as outcomes of similar people to modify the treatment. If you like, and if you watched Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, we would have our own um, Marvin robot, and I hope he won't be depressed, walking around on the units providing individualized treatment. And it might well be that one person needs a specific medication for two days, but you need it for three days or four days. And that kind of learning is only possible on an artificial intelligence platform. I mean, a human couldn't do it because there's far too much information to code at any one time. And that allows us to develop even more powerful treatments. And, you know, there are very important things in neuroscience that I would like to know. So, for example, going back to my analogy of something getting punched in the head and the head swelling, you know, neuroscience really doesn't understand why some people, the swelling of the brain comes down really quickly, while for some people it's very slow. But we know that it's really linked to outcomes. So one of the things that we're looking to do with our neuroscience um, initiative in artificial intelligence is to look at all types of brain injury as if there was brain inflammation. Now, I say that in a very interesting way because most people, when you say brain inflammation, they think about the brain being inflamed or the brain being diseased, and that is just a terrible and a bad thing. The interesting thing is certain types of neuroinflammation seem to be actually good and protective for the brain. And therefore, it's very important for us to understand how the brain repairs itself, fixes itself, and understands itself. And if we can aid that in terms of in silico models or artificial intelligence, we are going to develop some very powerful neuroscience tools for the future. Well, I wish we had more time. I know you have a hard out here shortly. And I just wanted you to tell all of our audience, whether they're reading this or watching it or taking in the captions or listening to it as a podcast, how do they get a hold of you and learn more about Dr. Bancole Johnson and the University of Maryland, everything you have going on there? Well, one of the, the things that uh, that person can do is to either call or email um, Interestingly, don't ask me my email address because I probably don't remember it accurately, but it can be supplied. But you can go into the University of Maryland uh, website and you can find us out and ask questions. Also, um, there is a lot of reading material that has emanated from the work that we've been doing that you can actually get access to. And these are free. These, these, are, these are open and these are things that are available to the general public, especially the works that we've done that are funded by the National Institutes of Health. But I don't want to go off the show without complimenting you, Harold, because one of the things that you're doing in with your neurodiversity project is absolutely stupendous. I think it's fascinating. And I think bringing information to the public to help the general public understand the brain, how diverse it is, 
and how they may be able to address specific problems of the brain, I think it's absolutely marvelous. And kudos to you and, um, and your team for, for doing this. Thank you so much for the kind words. And I apologize we weren't able to get to so many things today. We're going to save our questions for the next session we get together. And thank you so much for being with us. Dr. Bankole Johnson from the University of Maryland, thank you so much. Thank you to you and thank you for your show. And uh, thank you to your audience that has been listening and also your viewers. Thank you. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.